1: Let alone chasing it.
2: It's gone straight into the confectionery, stall and out again. And his bowling, that surely is going to be it. A joyous, triumphant botham there. Arms aloft again. 121 for nine. Botham on 99. Hughes the bowler.
3: Straight down the ground, beautifully played, and that brings up Ian Botham's century. This really has been a magnificent batting performance by one of the greatest all rounders of all time. Hello, and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, an Analyst Inside Cricket special today because Tuesday, the 24th of November, is a red letter day. It's Ian Botham's. 65th birthday. So we thought we'd do a special podcast all about Botham, the the legend, the man, both on and off the field. We've got both Simon Mann and Hugh Turberville, the managing editor of The Cricketer, on this particular podcast. And we've got Hugh on particularly because it was his idea, actually, to interview Ian Botham coming up to this very uh, important day in his life. So we're going to talk to Hugh about uh, the process of interviewing Botham and why he did so. We've also got some Botham talking about himself and Cathy, his wife, talking about what it's been like to live with him over the last 40 years or so. So a really interesting insight into Ian Botham, the man, the legend, the cricketer, and also now the winemaker. So Simon Mann first, what does Ian Botham say to you?
2: He says fantastic cricketer, dominated the 1980s. I wonder if he would have been an even better cricketer if he'd
3: played now. And Hugh, you you went up and interviewed him. So what about Ian Botham for you as a man, as a cricketer?
4: Scintillating cricket in the mid-80s, laudable charity work.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's good. We hadn't mentioned his charity work yet. Incredible contribution to leukaemia research, of course. Uh, lots of people uh, that have, I've spoken to, some of them sort of who weren't familiar with Botham as a cricketer because they're perhaps a little bit too young, sort of saying, well, why is he a lord? Well, why is he a lord? Not only because of his incredible contribution to English cricket and the world game, but also his 20 million... That he's raised for leukaemia research over the years with his charity walks and it's turned a child's chance of surviving leukaemia from 20 percent to 80 percent in that time so his contribution to to science and to the survival of the species in a way has been absolutely incredible we'll get into the the depths of of this discussion in a bit about ian both and the man and so on but just to say a couple of things first Uh, Don't forget the the live video stream that we're doing every Thursday in the virtual cricket club. That's at worldsbestcricketclub.com. And that's uh, this Thursday with Alistair Cook. We're really getting some a lot of uh, enthusiasm and interest in that club. Thursday night, 7pm, a live stream with a star player. You've got the chance to win memorabilia. You've also got the chance to actually ask direct questions to the star player that we feature. And I've created a WhatsApp group as well for sort of general day-to-day discussion about the game that we all love. So go to worldsbestcricketclub.com and you can join us for £6 a month and you get lots of great assets and content for that little fee. And it goes to, the, the proceeds go to the Professional Cricketers Trust charity. So that's Alastair Cook this Thursday. And also just to say thank you to Beer52 who are supporting this podcast with all their different craft beers from all over the world. Uh, we've been trying some on our virtual show, and I'll tell you, they, they are absolutely fantastic. Beer52.com slash cricket. You can get eight free beers, free craft beers, supplied for just £5.95 if you sign up. So that really is a good offer. OK, so Ian Botham. Now, let's just talk about the stats for a minute first. If we just look at how he performed for England in his career, 102 tests, 5,200 runs, average of 33.54, 14 test hundreds. Now that is an astonishing figure when you also factor in His 383 test wickets as well, as an average of 28.4, which, of course, at the time was a record for England, 383, which since only Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson have gone past. So a remarkable all-round record. And if you look at the ICC rankings, he's second in the all-time all-rounders list. No surprises who's first. Garfield Sobers, 669 points. Botham second. 645 followed by Callis 615 and then Keith Miller, interestingly, 572. So, you know, he really is close to being the greatest all rounder that's ever lived. Simon, what do you think about that?
2: Well, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think it's, it's worth starting off with the point that um, anyone listening to this podcast, I reckon about under the age of 42 would have never seen Ian Botham play, certainly not in his prime, and he was a magnificent cricketer. Those sort of late years of 1970s as a bowler, he swung it at high pace. And then 1980s, he produced some, those tremendous innings, 1981, those incredible hundreds at, at Headingley, and probably an even better one at Old Trafford. He, I mean, he did dominate English cricket, in the 1980s, uh, you know, every sort of conversation about cricket in the 1980s sort of revolved around him. And it wasn't just on field, it was it was off field as well. There was plenty of of controversies. I mean, I, I used to listen to Test Match Special. I used to hear Fred Truman talking about, you know, Keith Miller and the, the great Sir Leonard, and, you know, all the, all those sort of things in the past. And it was, it was fascinating because I never saw them play, but at least, One thing now is we can go back and and look at those events of of 1981 and 1985 and all sorts of other uh, incidents as well involving because, you know, because of the advent of YouTube and and video then, because what we can't do is go back and see very much of, you know, Len Hutton play or Keith Miller play. Or my absolute favourite, I'd love to go back in time and watch the Bodyline series of 1932. We can't do that. But of course, even though you didn't see both him play in the 1980s, you can watch him play on your, on your screens.
3: And Hugh, you didn't actually see him play uh, when you were, uh, well, certainly not in his pomp, I suppose, because you're too young.
4: Headingly passed me by. I wasn't into cricket in, in 81. Uh, but I started watching test cricket in 82 and... Yeah, I saw him uh, hit 18 off seven balls at Edgerton in 1985. I stayed up, I think, or certainly watched the highlights the next day and watched him bash Murphys around at Brisbane in 86-7. And I was enthralled when he came back from uh, his drugs ban in 86 against New Zealand and took two wickets in his first two overs. So, yeah, I mean, mean, uh, lots of exciting stuff, but I did miss his absolute peak, yes.
3: I actually was hugely influenced by both of them um i remember seeing him on telly 1977 in his first test and i was a compulsive test match viewer at the time i would have been say 16 and i watched all summer test cricket on telly in fact i scored as well i had a score book and i used to put you know dots and ones and twos and fours and things and and sort of then type them up later i was a real saddo in that sense uh, you know, should have got out more clearly. And, you know, I'd use the lunch interval to then go and try the shots that I'd seen the players uh, play or the balls they'd tried to bowl. And both of them, what struck me actually was the the sort of vigour that he had with the ball, really running in, charging in. He had a quite a long run actually at the start. And then, you know, tried to swing it, tried to take wickets as opposed to a lot of other uh, t- typical English bowlers like someone like Mike Hendrick, for instance, or, and a few others, you know, they just bowled sort of line and length. He really tried to take wickets by bowling full and tried to swing the ball both ways and trying to fox the batsman with a couple of outswingers and a big in-swinger. And I also liked his slower balls that he tried. Uh, he bowled a little off-break and I really developed that myself. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to bat like him but i tried to bowl like him and it, amazingly and i mean this sounds bizarre now but mike brealey who was of course england captain at the time um he actually when i first came into the middlesex team he said you bowl like both of them you know he said you you uh, you bowl those swingers and you try and take wickets and it's and it's really exciting um, and that was an incredibly nice thing of mike brealey to say and you know it wasn't necessarily proved uh, uh, over the long period of my of my career but um he definitely was a massive influence in just the spirit and the adventure of his cricket
2: one thing about him yours actually it, it's easy to forget is I, I actually first saw him bowl in 1976 in the benson and hedges cup match and on that occasion he was probably bowling about your pace actually he was bowl you know he he bowled he bowled medium pace and then Oi, uh, uh,
3: steady on <laughs> within a couple
2: within a couple of years, um, I, I saw him play uh, a county match against uh, Gloucestershire at Taunton on one sort of May Day bank holiday, and he he re- I mean he was a completely different bowler from from two three years before. You know he ran in and he, he bowled bouncers and he swung it at high pace. And for a couple of years, he was he, not only did he swing the ball, he was genuinely quick as well. But you know, back in mid seventies. He was you know, he he was a sort of medium medium fast really he was a sort of medium pace swing bowl he sort of totally transformed his game uh, in in the space of two or three years which of course can happen to bowlers, isn't it you you can suddenly make huge step forwards at, at quite a young age over a relatively short space of time
3: yeah hugh you you had the idea to go and visit and interview both them um which you've done obviously for the next issue of the cricketer magazine go to thecricketer.com to see that which is which is out this week the december issue so so why did you decide to to interview him
4: um he's the one cricketer that i my one of my heroes that i haven't really interviewed i interviewed in recently years Gower several times and met him and been to his house and Lammy alan lamb who i think was mar- i thought was marvelous uh I met Gat and a lot of graham gooch interviews so i think both and was the one that was was missing really, and I thought, well, I need to get round to doing this because um, I've been writing about cricket for twenty odd years, and um, he's the one that's got away.
3: And what and what, did, what was the what was it like interviewing him? Interview you say that you know in your piece actually you say you should never interview your heroes. So what was the experience like?
4: Yeah, so he's so larger than life, isn't he? Um, he was sports personality of the year. He was a tabloid fodder. He, had, he was sponsored cars and he's shredded wheat he's an absolute giant of a man and, and I always found him quite intimidating around the skybox he'd, he'd come down from the, the commentary box and, and breeze past me and I never sort of had the guts to talk to him um, so I was expecting I, don't, I wasn't sure what to expect really I was expecting to be really intimidating but actually he's, he's very he's quite kind and sort of um, generous with his time and, and patient with me and um, very nice so, but and actually that's borne out by all the things that people have told me i friendly with Derek Pringle and he said that you know he's an absolute fantastic bloke to go out for a night with and so generous with his time and gregarious and effervescent and, and and David English has told me all about him and uh so yeah no very very pleasant um came across as a real sort of Family man. And I
3: think generous is, is a really good word, actually. Uh, certainly, uh, m- that was my experience of, of him playing for Durham, uh, that, that he, was, he looked after people really well. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of stories about that later, but let's, let's hear from Beefy himself. We're going to join the interview with him, talking about the 100, on which he was actually quite positive.
1: As chairman of Durham, there's a lot of interest. People want to know more about it, yeah. they want to play it. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm very much in favour of the 100. Sometimes you need something that refreshes and changes. Mm. It's like changing a car uh, or buying a new house. You know, you, you, you effectively we're looking at another way to develop the game, and I think it will have a lot of public interest. You're always going to get, when you move something away, you will always have someone objecting, because that's their way of life. It's their routine. Interesting. Whereas I think sometimes you've just got to throw the wild card in. And I think the hundreds are wildcard. Could Durham be
4: in it? I mean, could it expand to get Durham and Somerset in it? Uh, Well, I think. Well, I mean, I know they want eight teams,
1: but yeah. um, But you know, do do you know what? I think it will evolve, and I think, but you've got to give it time. Mm. It's like you know, seed germinating. You've got to give it time, Mm. because no one knows how it's going to be respected. But I think certainly the people I've seen at Durham, there's a few that are a bit shaky about it but the majority of people want to know more about and it. And they will go to Leeds and watch the games. And, yeah, I think yeah. That's so, yeah. no, interesting. Stokes' captaincy.
4: Um, interesting. Like, you were captain, <coughs> you know, you've got so much on your plate as an all-rounder. Hmm. Um, and he's had a taste of it now with the first test. And he obviously made a couple of decisions. I mean, you, you live and you breathe, you know, die by your decisions, don't you? Um, but do you think it's something you can do in the future?
1: I think that's something that he will only know. Yeah. Um, with hindsight... I probably shouldn't have taken it at 24. Uh, but having said that, when the biggest accolade your country can bestow on you is mm. the captain of your test side, and at 24, you jump at it. Also, everyone forgets, <laughs> uh, 12 of my uh, 14 tests yeah. away were against the West Indies home and away, yeah. and no one was beating them. No. So that you were drawing it, which is yeah, a good, good effort. Well, compared we, to what yeah, we lost 2-0 uh, uh, two, two and 1-0. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, it wasn't the Gower's catch at Trent Bridge. <laughs> Gower <laughs> dropped that one, and he would have caught that nine hundred and ninety-nine <laughs> times out of a thousand. But uh, but no, we would have won that game, I think. But uh, we didn't. But we were playing the best of the best, and mm. I still think that the West Indian team of that era was the best that's ever played. I can't see anyone ever beat. Better him. than McGraw and Warren. That. Well, they've got four bats, uh, four or five batsmen. Dujon at seven is a fantastic player. brilliant man. And you've got Haynes and Greenwich probably one of the best combinations West Indies have ever had at the top of the order. Then there's a bloke called Richards, he mm. wasn't bad. Mm. And then you got got Trian, then you got Clive Lloyd, and then you got, uh, coming in at six, it could be... Larry Gomes was the yeah, was on the side line. because he was a backbunner. Yeah. So, you know, and then they had a choice of about 12 bowlers. And they are all, the majority <laughs> of them, over six foot and quick. Whether it's Malcolms, Bako was probably the shorter yeah. one, but a, a, a genius with the ball. So. Mm-hmm. I, and then people say well they can't be the best side in the world they didn't have a spinner well my answer to that is when was the spinner going to bowl so yeah uh, i think clive Lloyd revolutionised the, the game in that period
4: when did you when would you have liked to have been captain
1: if if not 24 oh, well probably 27 28 right which is where ben's coming to but ash is 85 kind of thing yeah probably but yeah, you look back you in I'm not sure I wouldn't change anything. No. Um, great believer in things happen for a reason. Right. Um, I enjoyed being the, if you like, the sergeant major or the, you know, the, the enforcer for the team. Mm. You know, dressing room, what have you. Um, cap, played with many captains. I find it very difficult to go and pat someone on the back when they've just dropped the easiest catch in the world. I'd rather like to kick them up the backside and walk on. Um, whereas now I see these guys, you know, they make us. Students saying their boys all patting them on the back and everything. And I know what they're really thinking. It's something totally different. I think Broad and Anderson show their annoyance, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think they're entitled to it, yeah. to be honest. When you've got two guys like Broad and Anderson and what they've done, uh, I would give them a free reign. And I think they do, pretty much. Yeah. But quite rightly, they've earned that right. They, it, this is, you know, mm. the, It's so important that players, this is why I like, admire Ben, you know he, He's had his ups and downs, but he's, he's, he's being big enough and strong enough to get through them, mm-hmm. and he is possibly one of the most exciting players in world cricket now, if not the most exciting. If you've got a day off and he's at home, and he's not with the England squad, because well, obviously most of the time they're in these bubbles, but in, before then, he'd play a game for England, he'd be back up to Durham, and he'd be in the dressing room with the boys the next day. How's it going, boys? Blah, 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 a bit chat and everything, mm-hmm. and that... I admire, mm. I admire that. Whether he is captain or as a sergeant major, take your pick, vice captain, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that's a decision that he will make. Mm. And only he can make it.
3: So uh, Botham, who, of course, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this, uh, this podcast today is because it's his 65th birthday and you know, a lot of people retire at 65, or they used to. No danger of, of beefy. Retiring, a man of restless energy and enthusiasm, uh, and really thrown himself into the job of being chairman of Durham, of course. And, you know, obviously, he sounds like a, a real advocate for the 100, Hugh, as well.
4: Yeah, and the Durham thing surprised me because I was expecting him just to be a sort of figurehead for Durham, but sounds like he replaced the board and brought uh, the chief uh, exec in. Um, Tim Bostock was a minor counties cricketer. Um, He'd gone on to work for the Bank of Australia, and uh, he both brought him back from Australia to be chief exec. So I was surprised how hands-on he was about uh, Durham, at Durham. And I was also very surprised about his views on the 100 because in the article, in the interview, he says that test cricket's his thing and he hasn't really got that much time for much else. And he doesn't, he's been uh, notoriously sort of lukewarm and ambivalent about T20. He's also now Durham chairman and they're not in the 100. But in fact, he's actually very positive about it and a big fan of the 100. Well,
3: think I, th- I think he sees its influence on the on the game as a whole and uh, the, the, the way it can drive up interest. But of course, he does also say that, you know, test cricket is, is the be-all and end-all in the end. And if, if we didn't have test cricket, the whole game would sort of die, he feels. Yeah.
4: Well, I was surprised by it. And I said to him, do many what you know he said most of the durham people durham fans he talked to him about it are are curious about it rather than aggressive and i said to him well do you really think people will go from newcastle to watch matches at leeds and he thinks they will so yeah just took me back a bit i must admit
3: certainly you know he talks about ben stokes there and uh, when when and if would be the right time for him to be captain Just looking at at their comparative stats at the same stage in their career, uh, Stokes has played 67 tests, 4,428 runs, 158 wickets. Uh, Both of them at the same stage, 3,800 runs, so 600 runs less, but 286 wickets, so 128 wickets more. So, you know, he was more of a bowling all-rounder, really. And uh, I I guess... You know, his his career, it did go sort of a little bit fluctuating, didn't it? He sort of had that amazing sort of 1979, 1980, 81, and then it sort of dropped off a bit. And then he had a few issues with drugs and things like that. And he was suspended for a while uh, and then came back with a, with a bang, but perhaps wasn't quite as effective, certainly with the ball, as he had been in his pomp.
2: Well, I made the comment right at the start of this podcast that I wonder if he would have been an an even better cricketer if he played now. And the reason I I said that is because I think you know, he had fitness issues, he he put on weight, and he had back problems, and it, it hampered his bowling, and and, and towards the end, uh, you know, he went back to being that sort of, that medium pace trunder, actually. I mean, it's hard to compare the, the, the guy who finished his test career with the one that was, you know, at his pomp 10 years before, of course, you know, time ravages all of us, although, you know, you look at someone like Jimmy Anderson, that, that, that hasn't happened, of course, and he's, you know, he's still um, a magnificent athlete. And the magnificent bowlers. I just wonder. It's one of those sort of fascinations I have because I mean I loved watching him play. He was a fabulous cricketer, uh, bat and ball. And he was so excited. He could make things happen. He could catch as well. He was a brilliant uh, slip fielder. There's that there's that sort of nagging bit in me. If 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 only he had a, a bit more discipline in his life, whether he would have been an even better cricketer, and whether actually now. Um, the, the structures that are in place now you know all the sort of demands the fitness demands that the, they have on you know international cricketers now especially in the, in the England squad whether he would have been able to sort of harness that and, and you know still being the same cricketer I mean there's I mean I think there's a feeling and he, he might say it himself that uh, that he had to live the way he did off the field just you know it sort of it, him off the field and on the field was like the same being in a way and that you couldn't have one without the other I don't know whether you know, you, you could have put more off-field discipline and that would have tr- tr- helped improve his game on the field even more. I'd, I don't know. But it's one it's one of those things that's always fascinated me about him.
3: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, if I had to sort of try and sum him up, I think he, he, he to me, he was a gem who sparkled on the biggest of stages. So sometimes playing for Durham, which I did with him for two years, sometimes, you know, on a kind of fairly dead day somewhere, he wouldn't be that interested uh, but you know, if there's a big crowd on a Sunday, wherever it was, whether it was in Darlington or Canterbury or uh, you know Derby or wherever, you know he was he was really uh, uh, you know sparky and and brilliant. Um, I, you know, I have a few kind of moments I just remember. You know, Matt, he was a match winner. He he sensed the moment and he could really seize it. And of course, he did that famously in that 1981 Ashes series. But, you know, for Durham, you know, when he was very much past his best, he would still, there was, a, there was our first ever game, Durham's first ever game, which was a Sunday league game against Lancashire at the race court in Durham. It was seven to win. I was bowling the last over. Lancashire, a very good one day side, had uh, seven to win, only one wicket left. And off about the third ball, Beefy at mid wicket pounced as they tried to get a single and hurled the stumps down. Absolutely brilliant! Uh, in a very tight Nat West game in the quarterfinals against Middlesex, he came in and played the decisive innings, uh, sort of seventy not out or something, and saw saw us home. He also performed a brilliant run out in in that game. I remember when Viv Richards came into bat for Glamorgan, he was playing for Glamorgan that year, and when he came into bat in, in a Benson Hedges game, you know there was a, a hush around the ground because it was Viv striding out to bat. And Beefy said, "You yeah, know, give me the ball. I'll I'll get him." And even though he was only bowling at sort of seventy-two miles an hour, you could see Viv slightly in awe of of, of Beefy, his great mate and his great sort of opponent. And although Beefy bowled this sort of fairly lollopy medium pacer, Viv tried to turn it sort of rather respectfully to leg and played a bit early. The ball looped off a, a leading edge only about 10 yards in front of him, and Beefy kind of pound, powered down the middle, leapt right out and stretched him and just one-handed plucked it off the ground. Brilliant catch and got Viv out. So he, you know, he was just great at seizing the moment. And oh, I mean, there are so many occasions when when he was able to do that. The other thing about him, and, and just to go back, Simon, to your point about the fitness thing, you, you know, he was a great socialiser. And I think he... He inspired his teammates by this sort of camaraderie that he created around the team. And also, uh, it had the, the, the opposite impact on the opponents because, you know, the firstly, they could see this great sort of rousing camaraderie that he achieved. And secondly, uh, he was able to, by his generosity of the parties that he threw, really undermining the strength and resilience of opponents uh, by basically getting them plastered and um, And you know sort of giving them mm. plying them with with wine and food and so on, so that when after one of his famous parties, they staggered off in the middle of the night they couldn 't perform the next day, whereas he had you know an iron constitution, mm. and he could and uh, I mean I just one classic example of that was in a match um uh, during a four day game that we were playing against Essex Durham against Essex, and he threw a party on the Saturday night, and we were having a one day game on the Sunday in the middle of the a four-day match, which was an sort of absurd, absurd thing we used to do, and one of the people he managed to kind of uh, completely reduce to, you know, wobbly legs was Graham Gooch, who wasn't a habitual drinker, but Beefy had sort of lured him into his lair. In fact, at one point, he locked us in his cellar for a, about an hour because he wanted some of his red wine residue sort of drained. And I remember staggering out of his house and down the road to the hotel we'd stayed in. For the night at about four in the morning and graham gooch was was with me with me because we were staying in the same hotel and uh gooch he sort of looked at me rather kind of uh bleary-eyed and i said you know at uh, 10 30 in the morning i'm going to be bowling at you because you're going to be opening the batting and i'm going to be out in the bowling and he was sort of oh no oh god oh. and you know sure enough ten thirty in the morning he staggers out the bat literally doesn't lay a bat on the first over lbw naught last ball of the first over and sort of staggers off so you know that's one just isolated example of the impact that he could have so, on opponents
2: so here's here's a question on your, so if if both were playing now how would that would that transform his cricket what how how would he cope with the the regimes and the, and the, and the greater discipline the greater sort of I mean it wasn't it wasn't as if he, he he wasn't interested in fitness I mean he played you know he played professional football for goodness sake didn't he well you know, you have to be you have to be fit to play pro football
3: mm. I think he trusted his skill and yeah I mean he might have been able to bowl a bit quicker for a bit longer you know his body might have held up uh, a bit more but whether he could have contributed more with the bat I'm not sure because I think he he put so much energy and vigour into his bowling and he would bowl, you know, 30 overs in, in an innings. I think it's very difficult to then also be able to apply yourself with the bat for really long periods. Uh, so you, you had to have a... He had to be an impactful sort of batsman at number six. I don't think he could have played... For instance, the Ben Stokes innings at Headingley, uh, which, you know, won that amazing game in 2019... Which started as a real meticulous accumulation for a long time before it really exploded at the end. You know, Beefy probably wouldn't have been able to play that kind of innings. Although Hugh, uh, you, you mentioned this, I think um, in conversation earlier, he did block out block out a whole four-hour day in a match against Pakistan to save a test as well.
4: Yeah, yeah, 1987. He him and Gatting uh, batted. The whole afternoon didn't they to save the, the match at the oval um, i think beer was his thing wasn't it i mean w- what was interesting well, i used to listen to boycott and tms talking about both and the bowler and, they, and i think they're friendly now but i mean there has been some antagonism between the two of them But Boycott's absolutely generous in his appraisal of both and the bowler 77 to 81 as simon said he's uh you know just swinging the ball at high pace charging in a really high class. boycott was saying a really high class performer but i think he started putting on weight, didn't he? And I think John Lever told me that he switched to wine or tried to switch to wine in Australia in eighty two three. It's probably where the wine thing started, uh, just to try and keep the weight down. So he was he was really struggling with the wine there. But on the batting front, um, yeah, I mean there's that belligerent innings at Brisbane in eighty six seven. But yeah, he, he could do it. I mean he could play that kind of Stokes innings. He did do that with that one time up against Pakistan. I, I mean Easter Madden me and and my best friend you know we used to love him about the way he gives his wicket away but i suppose that was his game wasn't it he he, as you say he'd come in and try and smash somebody out of the ground in the first over and get out And, and it was maddening but uh i suppose that's just the way he played isn't it
2: i suppose my question was it wasn't so much how he would fit in and be able to do the things he did then now it was it was more how he'd react to the so sort of the greater discipline uh, that mm. is you know, you know, forced on players now. I mean, you, you, know, the, you know, for example, not so long ago, I mean, during that Headingley series, there was a twelve o'clock curfew, wasn't there? Uh, Jack Leach was telling us about that um, last mm. week on the Virtual cricket Club. You know, he said after the the victory at, at Headingley, that, like they all had to be in by twelve o'clock. You know, they wanted to go out and celebrate amazing victory, but you no, know, it was twelve o'clock curfew. Yeah,
4: he, he wouldn't have it, Simon. I don't think he'd have it, would he? I mean. I mean that 86-87 tour to Australia England won everything and they were brilliant but for the first three weeks they all got annihilated didn't they <laughs> uh, and, and that was part of the management man management by Mike Gatting and Mickey Stewart they they gave them their head but both of them himself I think come the first test sat them all down in the dressing room and said right this is it this is our time Let's stop it now you know and of course they probably picked it up again later on Elton John was being the DJ and they won the Ashes at Melbourne and everything but um, I, yeah, he, was, he would, he would, I don't think he'd have that, would he? I think as part of the man management, you have to give people, you have to treat people differently. Don't you? I just don't see mm. how both of them could have been
3: curtailed. Yeah, like I mean, it was, it was more of a fun era, wasn't it? Cricket was still fun, and I'm not saying it's not fun now, but it's so much more scientific in a way now. And everybody has to sort of play their part and and fit into that that sort of approach. Then cricket was fun. And I I think back actually to the incredible game he had uh, in Mumbai, then Bombay, the Test match in, I think it was 1980, when he took uh, 12 wickets in the match and he scored a hundred, and it was you know baking heat as well. Uh, England won that test match, but he was up half the night with the famous Chris Crash Lander, who was the cricket correspondent of the Daily Mirror, drinking the beer that they'd imported from Australia because they didn't want to drink Indian beer because at the time Indian beer wasn't too nice. Uh, so they brought a load of Castlemaine 4X or something from australia where they'd previously been and just basically knocked that back during the night watching videos or something uh, so he hardly had any sleep never mind uh, the the effort he put in on the field it must have been exhausting but he seemed to have this incredibly sort of cast iron constitution that enabled him to do it and <laughs> other people couldn't keep up with it and of course i tell that you know ridiculous story which i'm not going to repeat again uh, but about, uh, you know, the, the fact that we had to uh, must have a rotor system at Durham to go out with him at nights because you couldn't possibly do it yourself every day because it was too tiring, too expensive.
4: David English was telling me that both um, him and Viv Richards, the King and I, did a speaking tour and was called The King of I in Australia and both of them is an insomniac, I think, or was and didn't sleep at all and so David English would have to stay up from 1 till 4 in the morning and then Liv Richards would come down at 4 till 7am, you know, just to keep the guy entertained.
3: Well, actually, that that's true. And, you know, I remember once, again, at Durham, we were staying in a hotel, I think, at Leicester, and I'd gone to bed at about, you know, half 11 or something, and my phone went at 2 o'clock in the hotel with the sort of, you know, bedside phone rang at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I got... You know how sometimes you get those sort of palpitations when the phone goes late at night Mm. and you're worrying about it? Mm. Anyway, I answered it, and it was a familiar voice. It's it's beefy here. I've got a bottle of Beaujolais. I need to finish. And if you don't come round and share it with me, I'm going to come and beat the door down. So I got up and shared a a, sort of half a bottle of red wine with him at 2 o'clock in the morning because he couldn't sleep. So, you know, it was... Tiring, but entertaining. Undoubtedly entertaining to to play with him.
2: What was his best innings? Josh? We we talked a bit about his bowling. We haven't really mentioned his, his batting that much. And of course, there was heading the eighty-one. There was Old Trafford in eighty-one. There was also that remarkable innings he played in a semi-final at, at Lords against Middlesex, where he he blocked out the last over against John Embry. The scores were level, but Somerset had lost fewer wickets, so they would go through. So he took took the risk rather than trying to score the run against John Embry. Just Locked out a hold over? No, of course, if he'd been out, then you know it would have gone the other way, and Somerset could have well have lost the game. What, what, what do you yeah, remember about his batting?
3: Um, a, a few things, actually. I'd certainly say his best two innings were the Old Trafford century uh, against Australia in '81, where he totally destroyed. The uh, Australian bowling with with wonderful clean hitting. It wasn't slogging. He was he was slogging a bit at uh, Headingley in '81. Whereas that that innings at Old Trafford was was really clean hitting, calculated assault. Uh, also, the innings in in Brisbane, which which Hugh mentioned in the eighty six seven series, that sort of set England up so well in Brisbane, the the and you know he really took the the, the bowling uh, attack on there. And uh, one little innings I remember, um, you know, a match winning innings, which was extraordinary, was uh, in a John Player League, a Sunday League game, when Somerset needed uh, fifteen off the last over, and uh, he wasn't on strike and the last over was bowled by Wayne Daniel, a uh, really you know, viciously fast Barbadian, and Richard Harden was on strike, and for the first two balls, couldn't get off strike, and Beefy was at the non-striker's end, champing at the bit to, to get at the bowling. Eventually, off the third ball, Harden managed to scramble a three uh, down to sort of you know deep mid-wicket or something. So Beefy was on strike, 12 to win from three balls. Uh, he hit the fourth ball miles over midwicket for six he then hit uh, I think a two off the of the fifth ball and then hit the last ball for six again a sort of low full toss went miles over deep square leg into the crowd and they'd won the game and you know it was when that was when you thought uh, if you didn't already think it this guy's got the mildest touch you know he's just an absolute mm. diamond who can win a game from unlikely situations.
4: To be able to hit the first ball, he faces for six. 85, uh, baston England were 440 for four or something. And he came in and smashed Craig McDermott for six, first ball over mid-wicket. And then he also hit the third ball for six. And I've never seen anything like that. That, And that's that's T20-style stuff now, isn't it? Where you can just go in and do that from the off.
3: Mm, Yeah. But he had actually, although we're making him out as a bit of a slogger, I I mean, he had a, a really good orthodox technique. I mean, he had a good defence. He played straight. He played back and forward. You know, his probably his best shot was actually a kind of on the up, through the offside, off the back foot. You know, he's he a brilliant judge of, uh, of height and, and length and just that tiny bit of width and he could hammer it through the offside with, with actually great control. He used these enormous bats, uh, which no one else could really pick up. And, you know, bowling at him in the nets if he ever had a net was seriously dangerous because, you know, it would come back at you so hard. But, I mean, I suppose in the end, you know, he's just someone who had this this impact on a dressing room. I mean, you know, no... Uh, no target, no uh, situation was beyond our team if he was in it. And he would be someone who would be saying, look, we can do this, you know, but you know, leave it to me, lads. Oh, we'll do this. And it was just incredibly invigorating presence to have in the dressing room.
2: Yeah, you don't hear many people say, "Oh, yeah, I I play with him both, and God, it was a tedious experience." I mean, and yeah. no, no one says that, do they? And I, you know, yeah. I also I don't want to seem churlish by saying oh, he could have achieved more. I mean, fourteen test hundreds and three hundred eighty three wickets and whatever however, however many catches it was, hundred catches. is just an in, incredible record. It, it was just uh, phenomenal. It, it was a it was a sort of treat really to be. As it is with Ben Stokes at the moment, we would better watch that player play. It, it was a treat to, to watch Ian Botham play.
4: I think Simon, though, you're right though, That if he hadn't been a bowler, he could have, he would have averaged a lot more than thirty-three point five with the bat. I mean, he would have averaged forty plus, wouldn't he? Yeah, and it's he just was good
3: yeah, enough
4: to, he was all. Yeah. I think he's probably good enough to be a specialist batsman wasn't it. Definitely. Well,
2: it's, it's easy to forget well, as well. We, we talked about the, we talked about the hundreds at um, you know Old Trafford and, and Brisbane and, and Headingley. He also made a supremely uh, assured double hundred against India at the Oval. It was a, it was a beautiful innings. It was almost a run a ball with mm. clean striking, wonderful cricket shots, and that and that showed you know he was perfectly capable of, as you say, of being a, yeah. a frontline batsman.
4: Well Lamb averaged thirty six and I think was getting thirty five so yeah he wasn't he wasn't far off was no he?
3: i mean that that era you know even gooch who uh, was a tremendous player, one of the best england batsmen ever he only averaged about forty two so it does show that you averages were considerably lower then so um there is a person in his life who's been that stabilizing influence throughout the the roller coaster of his career, and that person of course is his wife, Kath, who married him very early on in his life, relatively speaking anyway, in his 20s, early 20s. And she's been an absolute rock for him. Uh, He would be the first to say that over the last 40-odd years. Uh, So I thought it would be appropriate, actually, on the eve of his 65th birthday to talk to her. And the first thing I asked her was, what are they actually going to do for his birthday?
0: Well, obviously, because we're in lockdown at this moment in time, um, haven't really got anything in particular planned apart from we are going to have an Indian from Babble's, which is a restaurant in Barnard Castle, which is quite a famous place now, um, um, post-Dominic Cummings, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a great Indian restaurant, slightly different kind of menu that you associate um, the normal Traditional Indian restaurant with, and they were have been brilliant over lockdown, and so yeah, we're going to get a takeaway from there. So with the family because we're very lucky because Liam and um, and his children live on the property. Sarah B and Arthur will be coming over because they're in our bubble, and Becky and Seb because Becky works for us. So yeah, we're all we're all very lucky because we can have the family.
3: It's like a sort of early yeah. Christmas, isn't it?
0: It is really. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, it's been, you know, in in that respect it's been um, it's been really nice. Mm. Yeah.
3: Uh, so go on, tell us tell us what is the best and worst aspect <laughs> of being married to the legend that is Ian Botham.
0: Yeah. Well, well first first and foremost, he's not a legend to me. Um, because he <laughs> <you> kind of <laughs> we met when we were very young. Um, and got married and against I suppose a lot of people's predictions in back in the 70s we're still together um and I don't know really I I suppose in the early days it's we spent the majority of our married life apart which I suppose in one way has been quite helpful (laughs) it's only in the last couple of years that we've actually spent more time together so um yeah and it might have it might have been a little bit taxing at times because he's as you know he's not the, the um, tidiest of people um but uh, no we just we you know we just get on, we like doing the same things um and you just kind of mould together as as years go on i think I think that's secret.
3: And and, um, when you say he's not the tidiest, I mean, has he improved in that sense? Have you managed to?
0: Well, do you know what? Do you know what? I have, after 40 odd years, got him to lift his plate up after he's finished eating with his knife and fork and walk over to the dishwasher. And his excuse for not putting it in the dishwasher is he can never tell whether it's on or not. So I haven't quite um, got him to open the dishwasher door and put the the plates in yet, but um, I'm working on it. It's a work in progress.
3: Uh, Phil Tuffman was on our show a couple of weeks ago, and he said that one of his secrets about the dishwashers is, have two, because there's always one that's empty.
0: <laughs> ah, yeah, well, yeah, they've got two in the barn, but in our kitchen, no, there's only one. Yeah, um, what, I'll, have to, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to get a new kitchen put in then, won't I? Well, that
3: sounds like a good thing to, to do for the next <laughs> yeah, few years. Um, and what, so, so what, what, what's he like to live with? I mean, go on. I mean, it, 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 what's the best? What's the best aspect of being with him? I mean, is it his energy? Is it his sort of optimism? Is it yes, his absolutely. contact? Positivity.
0: Something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, oh, oh, over the years, I mean, you know, looking back, um, it, it's been great. I mean, met so many different people from all walks of life. Um, one thing about us as a couple, we have friends, um, you know, f- f- a lot of them in the farming community around here. And we've known them and Ian goes off fishing and shooting with them. Um, and um, we enjoy times up in Scotland um, when the boys go off and do their various pursuits and the girls go off and, um, you know, go to the castles and the beautiful places, the gardens and everything. So from that point of view, it's it's been great with the types of um, friends we've met over the years. And, I mean, that's helped in in these uncertain times at the moment.
3: And and as far as um, sort of his personality... What what what's one thing if you, if you could say that like, he's he's sixty five so yeah. you know he's Loyalty, a, he's a mature man now um, yeah. what what would be what would be the one thing you could say to him on his six fifth birthday can you please just do this a bit more
0: oh, load the
3: dishwasher um, maybe uh, well probably the dishwasher yeah just
0: you know, just sort his clothes out he hates doing that you know everybody when you listen to what people have been doing over lockdown and everything. You you hear about them they've kind of gone into the wardrobes and shelves and and had a really good clear out. Well, he keeps promising to do that, but we're not getting very far with it. So I think from the Botham household, we need lockdown to go on for the next few years for him to do that. Um, That is the one thing. Uh, But on a more positive note over the years, I think one thing that people who know Ian always comment on is loyalty. He's, he's a loyal person. It's not always repaid, I have to say. Um, there have been moments when I got infuriated with other people because he, he is so, so loyal to both people and companies and organisations. And it hasn't always been um, reciprocated. But mm. I think that's it, that nowadays um, loyalty is something um, that you have to treasure with a person, I think.
3: And, and is he still... Sort of restless, has he still got that sort of energy where he just wants to do things all the time
0: yeah, which has been a little bit difficult, but he's been to to be honest, he's been really quite happy spending time with his grandchildren He's, he's a great granddad wasn't and by his own admission he wasn't a brilliant father because he was never around very much um, and focused on obviously his sport and, and, and things like that, but uh, his grandchildren he's a doting granddad. I think he he would, I mean, people will will dispute this, but from my point of view, I think he would win all the awards for the best granddad because he just loves having his grandchildren around. And we've got eight of them. We've got seven grandsons and one granddaughter. Wow. So, yeah. And James,
3: (laughs) and and how's he going to feel about James playing against um, his country on Saturday?
0: Oh, well, um, he's already been looking on the Welsh uh, website for a red top. (laughs) So there you are.
3: <laughs> wow.
0: I think I think that answers the question. I thought you
3: said he was loyal. <laughs> well,
0: yeah.
3: loyal to family it's, comes first, I suppose. Totally,
0: absolutely, family always comes first. Yeah, yeah, we're so proud, so proud. The whole well, the whole family is, and uh, we just watched something on a link this morning of him actually receiving his his cap in the dressing room afterwards, and um, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, it, it's. Um, It was an amazing experience. I was so nervous. So all last week, I mean, because we kind of knew slightly before everybody, you know, the other people until it was made, you know. So we had to kind of, once again in our lives, keep a bit mum. Uh, But it Mm. was, as time went on, as it got nearer and nearer, I was getting so nervous. And I thought, this is just reminiscent of watching... Uh, Liam play when he was down at Cardiff, and then got picked for England. And then, of course, what, what, all those years of watching Ian play for England, and sitting, you know, before lunchtime at a test match, praying that a wicket wouldn't go down and Ian would have to come in, because I knew that the, the beautiful lunches that we used to have, which were, you know, was, was one of the, <laughs> the best things in those days as a wife, um, I wouldn't be able to eat it if Ian was coming into bat. Mm.
3: Well, listen, um, tomorrow should be a a celebration for you as well because behind behind every successful man is a fine (laughs) woman, yes? Oh,
0: yes, of course, yes, yes. Yeah, I think so, yes
3: she's a saint Kath, actually uh, over her life um she's been just a wonderful support to him and uh, a voice of reason at times which he's needed of course and actually somebody who i think has helped him in his later life uh, in the, in the in the charity actually hugh because you know th- this this incredible contribution he's made to to leukemia research with the walks he's done and she's obviously being in the background and often in the foreground sort of organizing everything as well and with with the rest of his family
4: yeah well, she made a good point when i was talking to her and trying to liaise the, for the interview because she's she sort of his manager i think or set these things up that i said um is it 20 million is the latest figure 20 million that million they've raised for leukaemia and she said well at least but it's just raised awareness you know it, it's not, you can't put a figure on it. It's raised awareness for leukaemia and the charity, and it's so much more than just that 20 million. But it's a humbling story, isn't it? Because he was in hospital for a broken toe, and he was taken through a ward, and he asked what all these young men were doing in the, in the hospital beds, and, and he was told that they had a couple of weeks to live. So he decided that he'd, he'd devote all his time for these walks to, 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 to help people. It's incredible. And I think the people, the younger generation. I sound like the younger generation. I never thought I'd say something like that. But they they forget this. They don't. They're unaware of this. So when there was a discussion about me going up to speak to both, and, and there is some resentment, I think, about Brexit. If I'm honest, and, and his views on the House, you know, uh, what his elevation to the House of Lords, and the, the sniping on Twitter about him. But but you know, they forget that he, he he's done these incredible deeds, and and. Even if you don't disagree, even if you disagree with some of these politics, can you not look beyond that anymore?
3: Yeah, good point. Uh, actually, I uh, I went on one of his a couple of his walks, and he he was always very keen to to badger his teammates into joining him, and we couldn't resist. We couldn't say no, given the the commitment he puts in. But it's only when you actually go on one of these walks, you see what he actually does do on a daily basis. So. Uh, he will always get up sort of fairly early. And, and these walks, I mean, some of them were from John O'Groats to Land's End, for instance. And uh, I, I joined him on one in on in the North Wales sort of region. Uh, he would get up at 8.15, have a big breakfast. By nine, he was barking at everyone to get ready. And then 9.30 on the dot, we'd set off for our 30 miles a day. And it was going to be round about that every single day. And we'd set off at an absolutely furious pace. He would walk at close to four miles an hour, which is, for me, almost a jog, actually. It's a really, you know, fast pace. But he would keep that up. And they'd send um, a van in front with big loudspeakers on it saying, beefy's on his way, he'll be here in 10 minutes, 15 minutes time, ladies and gentlemen, get your money out, you know, be ready. And incredibly, people would line the streets. You know, it was like being with the Pied Piper or something. Uh, We would be a group of, I don't know, 15 of us walking with him. We'd all carry these buckets... Uh, which were there to, to collect the money, people would uh, line the streets uh, on not only in the middle of towns but on the outskirts as well they'd come out of their houses and and wave at us and throw money at us or you know put the money into the collection buckets if uh, it, we'd some sometimes go through a, an area where there' some older people living and they couldn 't get down to the to the street side maybe they'd wave from an upstairs window and beckon the collectors up to their front door and you know toss the money out of the upstairs window those uh, you know it was an extraordinary experience and that would continue for 6 hours until we reached our destination our next stop off point so you know 30 miles later no stopping for anything lunch or a wee or anything like that just absolutely just 100% momentum we'd get to the end and then it would be for him a massage a sleep a big dinner and a gallon of wine uh, go to bed at midnight and then up again for the next day. Do that 30 days in a row to, to complete the the distance. I, I needed a week off after one day with him. And and he yeah. did that 16 times, not necessarily the same route, but that kind of commitment was extraordinary.
4: That does remind me actually of one thing about him, I suppose, that he, he could possibly say he could be perceived as a bit selfish in the way that he expected others to, to be able to perform like that after that much, you know, um, false staffy and sort of carousing in the previous night. Um, what worked for him didn't necessarily work for others. I mean, you're, you're his teammates, so you know better than I do, but most human beings can't keep that going, can they?
3: No, which again is, an, is another remarkable thing about him. And, you know, that's why he's the Lord, he is isn't it, and because of, of that total, un- unadulterated contribution uh, over really two decades to this particular cause, which really you know got to got into his heart and soul, and now his peerage will probably stem you know other kind of causes, I imagine.
4: Oh, he was already a sir, wasn't he? I mean, I did have this debate with somebody, and they, you know he was already a sir, so. Would the survey for the cricket and all the charity? I don't know. I mean, you know, let's for balance's sake, acknowledge that there are people who aren't happy about his elevation to the House of Lords and they, they don't like his views on Brexit. And they don't like the fact he shoots things. And, you know, so he's a bit of a, become a bit of a Marmite figure, unfortunately, which is a shame when you consider his charity work and what an absolute national hero he was in 1981.
3: Well, he was, and uh, he's still someone who is making waves. This time, uh, at the moment, he's, he's got into his wine in a big way, and uh, I know he talked to you quite a bit about that, uh, about the the sourcing of the wine from... The Barossa Valley in Australia, and Central Otago in New Zealand, and Argentina, and so on. He's he's a big fan of of the New World wines, uh, both and wines. You can get them from any uh, normal supermarket. Uh, they're stocked, uh, you know, plentifully. It'd be a good time to get some actually over Christmas, I guess. Uh, so we've featured him in the cricketer magazine prominently with your interview Hugh and one or two other thoughts uh, as well from people and it's uh, got beefy of course on the cover it's out on Thursday and you can go to the cricketer.com/subscribe or the cricketer.com website to become a subscriber of the magazine So that's it. Uh, Looking back at uh, an amazing career and uh, probably a lot more that he will achieve, actually, uh, given that uh, he's got plenty of time to do it. Uh, 65 is is nothing, no age at all these days. Uh, It's incredible to think, really, that uh, people did retire at that age. So look out for the Cricketer magazine. And also don't forget our live video stream this Thursday night with Alistair Cook at worldsbestcricketclub.com. Subscribe to that and you can join us on Thursday night at 7pm. We've got lots of other guests lined up as well, including Ian Botham himself. And uh, he's going to be busy actually with um, wine sales and also apparently 200 turkeys that they've uh, been farming as well. So they're going to be a busy family, the Botham family, uh, at Christmas. And of course, look out also for his grandson, James, playing against England for Wales on Saturday And you can toast his birthday on Tuesday with some Beer 52 as well, some craft beer if you go to beer52.com slash cricket. Hope you can join us on Thursday for Alistair Cook. Thanks for listening.